I remember, I think I've maybe shared this story before, but after my mom passed, there was a lady from our neighborhood who she just showed up every day to take the trash out. So it was just one thing um, that she just walked through our door without even saying anything, didn't knock, just went in, grabbed all the trash that she could find and took it out to the the trash bin for us. Like that kind of servanthood and just being with people in that space to to say, I'm here, I'm with you, um, I think is so critical and so, so important. Welcome to the Monday Morning Phone Call Podcast. Every preacher knows when they're teetering on the edge of a topic that will result in receiving a phone call on Monday morning. Instead of backing away, this podcast exists to work through these polarizing ideas and spark conversation. This season, we're learning what it means to pull apart Christian beliefs and examine your faith in a process called deconstruction. We'll cover the most questioned topics within Christianity in hopes that it will help all of us better understand what we believe. All right. Well, today we are doing uh, continuing our series on deconstruction with a topic um, of suffering. And I think the thing that maybe needs to be said first and foremost about this topic is that um, some of the things we've dealt with are fairly theological or theoretical um, and some personal implications. But when you talk about the issue of suffering, um, it goes beyond all of those. It's deeply, deeply personal. And unfortunately, uh, as we'll talk about, suffering is also universal. Um, it touches all of us in in different ways. Um, and so, uh, Alyssa and Larry, thanks for joining yeah. this conversation. Yeah. Excited Hi, to, Alyssa. To Hi, have Paul. Hi, Larry. Hi, Paul. Good to be um, here. We are, uh, yeah, hoping that this conversation, as all of these, uh, will be helpful. Um, but as we kind of dive into suffering, is there any kind of things that you guys would say to set the stage for the conversation we're about to have or things you'd want people to know going into it? Um, I would say that we don't have any answers. Maybe, maybe to, just to start to say that if you um, were hoping for something, an answer, we don't have it. Um, yeah. But hopefully, this is has more nuance and is actually more helpful. Yeah, yeah. totally. I think that's and I, I totally. And the flip side, almost of that, is we do hope it's pastoral. We yeah. hope that it feels like people coming alongside and sitting and um, giving some hope. And um, so we hope we hope it lifts hearts. It may not answer questions. But, yeah. 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 I think that's that's kind of the trick when we dive into this conversation is that um, as much as we would like to provide like a bow to tie right. off the end of, of suffering, it's right. it's not that uh, clean. Um, I, as I was thinking about this, I was reminded of it's probably an image very uh, quite a few people are familiar with. Um, but there was a photographer in 1993 who went to the South Sudan and he took a picture. Um, he was trying to, to um, capture photographs of the famine that was taking place in the South Sudan in, in the year of 1993. And he found a photo, took a photo of a young boy um, who had very clearly been starving um, and had signs of, of malnourishment. And uh, in the foreground is this image of the boy, and then behind him is a picture of a vulture that's kind of preying on this child. Mm-hmm. Um, and just in it, it, it kind of captured the world's imagination about suffering. Of mm-hmm. This is just a symbol of the brokenness and hardship of the world that children uh, suffer, experience things like famine or abuse. 
uh, different things. Um, and it was kind of one of the first times, too, that, that suffering had been captured in that kind of way, that, that it was shared globally. It was kind of one of the first viral photographs before the Internet. But um, one thing that I think has to be said about suffering is we, we all experience suffering on a personal level, but we also live in a day and age where we are exposed yeah. to suffering of so many people across the world um, that we don't even know. And so it can kind of feel overwhelming at times because it feels like there's just this constant exposure to suffering and trauma and loss and grief and death um, that for a long time humanity didn't have. You lived in your little village and you maybe understood what was going on there, but you weren't aware of things that were happening across the world. Um, and so we, we have to deal with suffering on a personal level, um, but it's also we understand that there's global ramifications of this conversation um, as well. And so deconstruction uh, we think often happens around suffering because of theology, but also because of lived experience and those two things specifically not matching up. So when you guys think of suffering and, and lived experience and what you've believed to be true about scripture or God and those th things not aligning in this space, what, how do you kind of begin to wrestle with some of those things? I, I would say uh, that as far as how we've talked about deconstruction, that this has been one of the primary avenues that mm -hmm. I've seen, seen and just observed life yeah. um, where when people, especially, you know, the kind of suffering that is um, just out of our control, that just happens to us. We have no control over it, takes everything from us. Um, trying to line up that lived experience with the goodness of God, that's tough. And there, are, there's no... Like, that's just not, let's go have a cup of coffee and figure this out. Right. That's just, it's a driving kind of um, relentless uh, doubt in, in God's, sometimes his goodness, sometimes even his presence, yeah. his actuality. So uh, I, I think, you know, and so often experience and life circumstances are what forms us even. And so it's in those times that I think it's so hard to, to hold on even to, you know, beliefs and, um, mm. you know, any kind of uh, theology that we might have stored in there somewhere when it's put to the challenge with cruel experiences yeah. in life. It's tough to hold on. Yeah. And so what I want, you know, so often deconstruction is, you know, um, different things throughout life cause us to start wondering and doubting and doubting. And, you know, it's, sometimes that's a really good process, mm -hmm. as we've talked about. That can be very healthy. This one, I think is it's not about trying to figure out my new worldview. This one is how do I survive? Yeah, that's well so said. The stakes are higher. Yeah, yeah, that's really well said. Absolutely. I think when you're talking, Paul, about just how saturated it is, that I just thought about it being like this death by a thousand cuts, that we are just getting it from all these different directions and we are trying to survive. Um, and it feels like you are just feeling it constantly and then all of a sudden it will personally happen to you or someone that you know and that can just um sweep you out from under under your knees or whatever that phrase is that i feel like is in fighting um mma fighter is my right um like I don't, something sportsy um right that you just feel it yes. pull out from under you yeah. um and you're left already wounded from all of these other yeah. things um and having to pick yourself up and, and trust in a God that doesn't feel good mm -hmm. to your words, Larry. 
in suffering too, it, it's kind of hard to really categorize. And yeah. it's just, it can be so many different things. It can be um, obviously death and loss of someone you love. It can be um, things like physical illness, chronic illness, living in constant pain. It can be mental illness and and uh, just suffering through depression or anxiety or, or various forms of mental illness. I mean, it, it fits into so many mm-hmm. different categories. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's not like you can just address one individual thing and say like, oh, okay, this is why this happens, or mm-hmm. it's just kind of this constant space we live in. I think the other thing I'd maybe say about it is for a lot of people, this uh, trauma of suffering. Um, one of the things that's particular to the deconstruction community too is that they've experienced trauma, hurt, or suffering from the institution of the church mm-hmm. or from people within the church, and that those people in that space was actually supposed to be a place of healing from trauma and instead inflicted it. And so there's a lot of confusion for people of this was supposed to be safe. This was supposed to help. This was supposed to heal. And I'm actually reeling because it caused more and inflicted more damage on my life and my story. And so um, we just wanted to acknowledge that up front that a lot of people are experiencing trauma, hurt and woundedness from the very place that was supposed to do the opposite. Mm -hmm. Alyssa, I know you have kind of done a little bit of study about neurology of suffering, <laughs> like what happens study, to your brain. Study, <laughs> um, in quotations, right, yeah, for yeah, yeah. sure. Um, tell us about what happens to our brain when we suffer, because it's kind um, of fascinating. It is really interesting. So I got this from um, K.J. Ramsey, um, who wrote the book, This Too Shall Last, and she's actually a Denver seminary grad. Um, so I guess, depending on how you feel about the seminary, you know, hey. depending on... Yeah, we feel really good about Good, okay, good. Two just grads just making sure. This is, uh, Love this it. is true. <laughs> Um, So she uh, she suffers with chronic illness. Um, And so she uh, kind of similar to um, a specific kind of arthritis, um, I guess, is the summary. But she talks about the fact that all pain. So spiritual, physical, emotional, mental, all triggers the same neuro um, neurobiological process in your brain. So pain is processed in our brains and bodies as a threat to existence. Our brains focus their attention and energy on survival and can do little else. We feel less like ourselves and less connected to others because pain itself prompts a sensation of internal um, disintegration. Mm -hmm. Our bodies intuitively shut down and shut out others to survive, making it incredibly difficult to access the parts of our brains that think rationally, keep perspective, and feel secure in our relationships. Social connectedness and pain are so intertwined, they share the same neurobiological pathway. When pain of any kind makes us feel less ourselves and less capable of engaging in relationship, we experience it as suffering. Um, And so I just thought that that was really interesting because I think so often um, when you're experiencing suffering, that's when you need community the most. And our brain actually pulls away, um, causes us to pull away from community or at least not be able to engage it in the same way. Um, And I also thought it was really interesting that our brain experiences any kind of pain, um, physical, emotional, spiritual, like I just said, as – as in the same process. And so yeah. we hold all of those things in our in our bodies yeah. the same way. Which makes, I think, a lot of sense because I think so many people who are experiencing suffering feel isolated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, the experience of suffering is one where you feel like I'm the only person in the world who knows this experience um, and who, yeah, who understands what I'm going through. Yeah. And you feel very isolated and lonely in that space. But it's fascinating that the brain even 
pulls away from those spaces to in protection yeah. and survival. That's I think that's really one of the great challenges of grief and suffering is what what you need most you want least yeah. in that in that moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've seen it so many times that exact phenomena you describe where people who have just experienced a loss of a loved one, let's say, for a, a long time, there's this fog. And there's this sense of um, not being able to make even sometimes basic daily decisions, um, mm-hmm. but just because they're, they're not able to think clearly. I've, I've wondered at times if that's a coping mechanism, a yeah. God-given God coping mechanism. But at the same time, I just really think it makes it hard at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I could see another value in just some of it, that numbness uh, enable helps us to be hit with the pain in m- more small doses yeah. Um, yeah and not all at once yes mm-hmm. not I just be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the, yeah. Yeah, yeah the tragedy and pain mm-hmm. yeah the other thing um that we kind of came across as we were looking about this conversation was uh the effect that trauma actually has generationally mm-hmm. um which is interesting to me and I, I think i've said this before but how often the social sciences catch up to what the bible has told us <laughs> it's just yeah. fascinating to me yeah. but when you talk about generational trauma generational uh, sin even and, and consequences it they there's been studies that have shown that like a, a holocaust survivor that had children that their great great grandchildren who are walking you know around in in LA or or London today um, have experienced uh, a change in their genome and in their um, actual phys- physio- physiology physiological physiological <laughs> I don't know uh, but yeah that it, it's actually changed this is not a science <laughs> podcast not a science if that podcast. wasn't We're clear <laughs> uh, but they've actually experienced change where where that trauma that their great great grandparents experience mm-hmm. is still present within their body and has actually changed and so they've done uh, studies like that uh, around slavery too um, holocaust slavery some of these massive uh, traumatic incidents that have happened in, in human history that people are still feeling the effects of generations later. Um, and so it, I think it just goes to show how deep um, suffering and trauma impacts and influences our lives and why it's so so personal and hard to deal with at times. Mm-hmm. So as we dive into this, um, I think the big question most people have around deconstruction and suffering is why does it happen? Um, And why is our world so broken? Um, I know a lot of people might disagree on whether or not people are inherently uh, broken or sinful. Uh, but most people, um, very few people would look at the world and say there's not some sort of brokenness or something that's messed up uh, in the world, even if we might disagree on why. And so the, the question is, why is it so broken and and how do we kind of come to terms with that? I think it's important to say that this is actually not just a Christian conversation. This is something all religions try to address mm-hmm. and all struggle to address and all have um, challenges addressing. So what are some things that you guys have come across that... that or maybe a glimpse of the truth, but not actual truth about why suffering happens or or reasons people have given. You've heard people give about why suffering and, and, and brokenness exists in the world. Um, well, I would, um, a blessing in disguise. Yeah. I would say that that one, um, I've heard a handful of times after my dad passed away. I I think I heard it probably three or four times that people said, Oh, well, God just wanted another angel. Yes. And, and, and as someone who is a, 
experiencing that suffering of the loss that all of a sudden I have to, you're, you're putting on me that then I have to like be also wrestling with God's character and that mm-hmm. he wanted it and that I need to like be okay with it as opposed to just dealing with the fact that like my dad died and that's really hard. Yeah. Then all of a sudden I'm having to, you're adding this extra layer of, and then I also have to deal with like that God wanted him and, and did, wanted to take him away from me. Yes. Yeah. Um, but again, I get that people were just saying that to make themselves feel better because sure. no one wants, because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And so people feel like they need to say something. Yeah. But when people say that blessing in disguise thing, it, it almost takes away permission to grieve yeah. or to say exactly. something is wrong. Because mm-hmm. they're saying like, you can't have a problem with this because God wanted it. God did it. God desired it. So therefore it has to be good. So why would you be sad? Mm-hmm. And that's so... Um, harmful to the grief process and and stuff. But Larry, what are some others that you've maybe come across or explanations people have given about for, for why yeah. the loss happens? Um, I, I would say another one, and I, I, I've heard it in the church at times is, um, that God's going to, and I, what's hard, I think what the hardest parts of these are, there's elements of truth. in Totally. Them. Yeah. Yep. And so people are probably, and, and this was Job's friends, right? There's mm-hmm. some, thing that is true in this but uh, the timing is bad and actually the the uh, the whole intent of it is not totally spot on so for instance you god's going to do something good with this mm. he's going to bring good out of the yeah. the bad or the suffering uh, that's a terrible thing to say i think to a person yeah. in grief at that time even though there's truth mm-hmm. in it and then i think uh, what it does is it cheapens i think the the pain it cheapens the grief of that moment just by saying, well, come on, buck up. God's got this, and he's going to take care of everything and work it out. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, there's elements of truth in that, but that still hurts. Yeah, absolutely. It, still hurts. it kind of, the, I shared this in the sermon uh, this past summer, but uh, it's this spiritual bypassing that yeah. Christians feel like they mm-hmm. have to do. Of, of we'll just spiritualize it. We'll just yeah. make sure everything looks good and shiny and nice and okay um, because we don't really want to deal with the underside that, that yeah. things are actually hard or, or broken. Um, and I think that the trick with some of that is that um, it, kind of goes against what scripture teaches us about like it, it, you're exactly right it, god will do um things with our suffering mm-hmm. um but sometimes the spiritual bypassing changes it to where god did this bad thing so that he can do something good like it makes god the author mm-hmm. of the bad thing and scripture actually doesn't say um that every bad thing that happens to you is good it right. says that God will turn all bad things mm-hmm. um, into new and right. remade and redemption. And so that there's so a nuance there. It's not there. necessarily God's growth plan for you yeah. that, he's, that he's enforcing. Yeah. yeah. Yep. He uses those things. Yes. But um, when we start becoming author of that, I think that's where the character of God comes into question. One thing similar to that, I've heard um, either that it's testing or that it's that you don't have enough faith. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that people tend to explicitly or explicitly, explicitly. Oh gosh, y'all, what are we doing? Um, explicitly <laughs> say that. Um, but I remember, um, a childhood friend, um, got into a car accident and is now a uh, quadriplegic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, his mom kind of went through this whole grief process and, and I mean, it would just say like, God's going to heal you. Like God is going to make you walk again. Like we just need to have faith. And just that that was right. That it, you know, that we're just going through this test. Like God is, is trying to really put us through the ringer and like you're, you're going to be able to walk again. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, I mean, I, obviously she was going through some trauma too, but like that certainly didn't help him to wrestle through and like, well, maybe I should do rehab. Like maybe like we need to start moving forward. Um, but she was kind of stuck, hmm. stuck in that. Yeah. yeah. I think another one I, I often come across in the church is that if bad things happen to you, it's God's punishment mm. against right. you, that you did something wrong. And so therefore um, God is, is giving your parents cancer or something yeah, like karma. that. And, yeah, yeah, karma. And it's mm. this causality, um, which is really dangerous, especially when you start. I mean, for anyone, it's hard to hear that like someone died because of something, some sin you might have done. Um, but when you start using that kind of language with children, especially mm. like there's so much um, harm that can come from that. And scripture is clear that sometimes we do things and there are consequences to those actions but when you start labeling all suffering as a result of some person's behavior you know i think there's a plenty of examples we probably don't have to go into them but of suffering that's happened on a, a communal scale where some pastor has said oh that's because of this community or or that you know 9-11 being the result of of gay people the church has contributed to this idea of bad things as punishment from god which if the whole goal is to bring people into relationship and communion God, what a terrible message Mm -hmm. that if you get out of line, God's going to smite you Mm -hmm. and take you out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, there's a a, a lot of nuance. And again, all of these kind of things we can say they they come from the church, but other religions would give very similar answers in Mm -hmm. different spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, This is a, a problem all religions um, are trying to solve an answer and answer and give some sort of answer. And I know, Larry, you've even said it's it's a problem for atheists who, who don't even yeah, believe in Yeah, I mean, uh, I've, I, yeah, in doing s- some research, I came across uh, Stephen Hawking. Uh, you, the, the, I think he was a physicist mm-hmm. um, uh, that was in a wheelchair for a long time. Uh, he lived, oh, debilitating motor neuron disease for his whole adult life. He once said that there's no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. That is a fairy tale story for people afraid of the dark. So one of the things I think that atheism does to deal with the problem of suffering is to basically say there's no afterlife, there's nothing else, there's no God beyond this. And so all that we have is to trust in the goodness of humanity. Mm. But the fact is, even trusting in the goodness of humanity, I mean, um, if there's no good or evil, why do we lament? Mm. Uh, if if our sympathy for others is just a byproduct of evolutionary kinship, why empathize with the suffering of those outside our tribe. E- even then, it gives really no ultimate answers or response to suffering that yeah. makes any sense, logical sense. Yeah. And so they, they grapple with it as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is kind of one of the, the challenges. Is it, it can feel like when you talk about this topic, you're just holding all of these pieces mm. and trying not to drop any of them, but, right. but not really sure how all they, they fit together and stuff. And I know there's even confusion because, as we've said, sometimes the, the church is actually the... the um, the culprit and, and the um, inflictor of suffering. Um. Absolutely. So when I was kind of doing research um, for this, there was a story that came out about what is now modern day Ghana, mm. that that was where they, um, there there was a, a jail cell essentially where they would funnel um, Africans who they were planning to traffic or be slaves to America. And they would have to be there for probably about three months, um, kind of wait for the ship, a ship to come to bring them over. And this cell was actually underneath a chapel and they obviously could, everyone could hear each other. And on Sunday mornings, they would have someone that was their job from the chapel to go down, um, to keep them quiet while, um, the people were, were praying up above. And I just think that that feels so, um, 
I mean, icky, but just the fact that the church was silencing and was literally above suffering Mm -hmm. um, and chose to do nothing about it. Um, And unfortunately, that is not just in past tense that obviously a few months ago, everything with the SBC came out and emails leaked that said, we just have to ignore them. We have to ignore these people that are coming forward, Um, that we are, there is something very different um, about saying something that you... um, is met in good faith, even if it's misplaced versus like this is malicious and this is going completely against the gospel Mm -hmm. um, and is actually aiding and suffering in the place, like you said, Paul, that is supposed to be a place of healing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And there's so many wounds I think people carry because of those kind of stories and and ways that the church has, um, yeah, participated in in some really horrific things, Um, abuse and uh, trauma and spiritual abuse and, um, yeah, abuse of power ways it's contributed to so so we hold all of these things and um i think the question sometimes people have is well why hang on to christianity like if Mm. this is what suffering is if the church even is uh, you know participating or inflicting suffering for people um what is so special about its worldview that would cause people to stay when they experience suffer and what what kind of hope does it have what kind of answers does it provide um and so larry maybe you could help get us started about uh, kind of maybe trying to reframe the Christian worldview on suffering and, and how uh, the Bible calls us to understand God and suffering. And where would you start? Conversation? <laughs> Paul, Paul and Alyssa, thank you very much for inviting me to, to this uh, podcast. Um, so I would qualify it with two things. First is I do think, you know, I, th- I think there is an explanation. I think there is a, uh, a, a, um, a Christian response and worldview to this that does make sense of what is. Uh, and yet, I still think there's mystery. I don't think it's a, okay, that settles it for me. Uh, I think we'll always encounter mystery around this idea of suffering and why suffering exists. And then I think the other thing to keep in mind is this kind of explanation, again, would never be anything that we'd sit with a suffering person and say, well, you just need to understand mm-hmm. this. Uh, th- this is um, this is belief and theory, and this is, uh, you know, our, our best attempt to explain something, but it's not really much good for a person mm-hmm. who's in deep grief, mm-hmm. honestly. So, but... Uh, you know, the Christian story, we, we like to talk about at Waterstone, is really four words. Uh, creation, we believe that God made everything, and it was good. And um, then the second word is of the story is fall. And we, we broke everything that was good. We took life into our own hands. And, um, you know, if a gasoline engine is designed to run on gasoline, we tried everything else, water, mm-hmm. whatever we put in there, and the engine does not run the way it should anymore and so and it's a we um it was you know adam and eve but we and them them as representatives of humanity it's a we so uh, and that's even that's tough to comprehend like it's they did it but we all bear the consequences of the fall and there's something even mysterious in that that somehow we in our first parents bear responsibility for them but uh when we when we decided we wanted to run the world in our terms at that moment i mean it's not only that the human heart began to uh turn in on itself and uh to want to go its own way but everything in creation fell Mm -hmm. as well and uh, and and in the um 
outside of the physical world. The powers uh, of, of the, in and around the world uh, came as well, came down. And so um, there was uh, a, a brokenness that entered. And then the rest of the story is that Jesus came to restore, uh, to redeem, uh, to rescue humanity. And so that in living a life um, that is righteous in God's sight, and gifting that to us, and in dying a death that um, forgives our sins, uh, we can be right with God and have relationship with Him right now, and and be bearers of eternal life. But then there is coming a time, and this is the greatness of the Christian story. In many ways, there's a coming a time when all things will be new mm. again mm. and uh, made um, not just like they were in the garden, but even beyond that, um, all things new and mm. redeemed. No, I think that's a great um, synopsis mm-hmm. of the story. And I've heard it said before that really all of the Bible is an effort to try to explain what happened at the fall and how we get out of it yeah. and, and what yeah. God is going to do. Um, and so you can look at the wisdom literature, and it's all trying to explain the brokenness that we experience between ourselves and God, ourselves and each other, ourselves and creation, and even the, the brokenness we experience within ourselves. And, you know, so the wisdom literature is trying to explain that, or you have the prophets that are explaining how um, the world works and the, the principalities and powers and the Babylons and how they um, contribute to, to suffering through empire. And, and ultimately it gets to this place where, where God redeems and rectifies and, and kind of fixes. Uh, but we live in this in-between space where we have to wrestle with um, the brokenness we experience and where God is in the midst of that and why he hasn't moved quicker or faster uh, to get there. You know, one of the prayers you often hear people pray after uh, a shooting or, or some sort of tragedy is, come Lord Jesus, like, yeah, come, come quickly. Yeah. Is this prayer and this longing, this lament for God to come and make things right. And so I think where most people experience kind of this disconnect or, or kind of experience some deconstruction is we live in this space where things are still broken, broken. things are falling apart. And where is God in the midst of that and why doesn't he do more? Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I think it's important to kind of understand as you go through Scripture, there's a lot of things Scripture says about suffering um, without actually answering the question of why we suffer. It, it does tell us about the fall, it does, but it doesn't tell us about each and every individual circumstance and give an answer for why those things are. But and Alyssa, I know for uh, the book of Job, you kind of did, mm-hmm. did a deep dive because that's the, the book on suffering in yeah. Scripture. Um, yeah. So what would you kind of find about that that might be helpful for us? Yeah, so speaking of wisdom literature... There is an Israeli scholar uh, said that the book of Job um, is on a triangle. So essentially, and the points of the triangle are God's justice, um, retribution principle, or the idea of um, karma, just compensation. If you do good things, good things will happen. Bad things happen to to bad people. Um, And then also Job's innocence. So those are the three triangles. And all of the um, characters in the story are kind of trying to make sense of how these three points can work together under the circumstances. So Job knows that he is innocent and believes in this retribution principle. And so he is starting to question God's justice as all of these terrible things are happening to him. Um, and again, if you remember in in Job that um, he's this righteous man, um, good man, and um, all of a sudden uh, he loses his family, he loses all of his possessions, that he kind of goes from, you know, 60 to zero in, in one second um, for seemingly no reason. Yeah. Right. And so he starts to question God's justice. Job's friends 
um, assume that God is just and also in this retribution principle. And so they say that Job must not be innocent. And so they start even making up stories about how Job is robbing widows and um, stripping people naked in the night to make sense of what is happening. Like, those are kind of funny accusations. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like just to make up about, like, yeah, you just took someone's clothes. You you robbed widows. Why? (laughs) He's like, what are you talking about? It's very specific. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Um, And then God knows that he himself is just and that Job is innocent. And we even hear at the beginning of the book, um, God having conversations about it. Um, And so throughout the book, God is trying to convey that he doesn't always adhere to this retribution principle. And so as Job is getting increasingly angry throughout the book and starting to question God's character kind of more and more loudly, um, God begins to show Job that he, that Job has a limited perspective and that God does know and, and care about everything in the world. And so why, and he talks about how he knows the donkeys and um, just kind of every inch of what's going on. Um, and I think it's very clear that the book is not trying to answer why good people suffer, but rather that it is asking us to trust who God is and the fact that he has a, a perspective greater than mm-hmm. ours. And again, I think to your point, Larry, that that is not something that you say to someone in the midst of, of suffering, um, that that's not what they need to hear. Uh, but I think it kind of intellectually and cerebrally gives us hope, um, mm-hmm. but not always pastorally. Yeah. And I do think there there is space, if it's done correctly, right, that people do need hope in the midst of suffering, yes. that God is bigger than our circumstances and that while we may not understand there is some element of of trust that god is good in the midst of that you don't force people into that but i think that one of the things we can do for people who are suffering is we have that faith and hope for them when they can't have that for themselves there's a great quote and this is super nerdy but (laughs) in lord of the rings oh yeah that is nerdy yeah it's super nerdy Um, but it's one of my favorite (laughs) i know whatever one of my favorite quotes but that is king aragorn he says one of his roles as king and leader is to um to give hope to others when he has none for himself and so there's this role we can can take for people who are suffering to try um to to offer them hope in the midst of of their suffering and i think that's one thing um so job doesn't tell us why but it does point us to and a lot of scripture points us to what we can expect in suffering from god and so larry what what would you say scripture kind of tells us about suffering and and where God is in the midst of our suffering, if it doesn't tell us exactly why God yeah. has allowed yeah. it. Uh, and that's where I, th- I think perhaps the best and first place we can go is to the life of Jesus mm-hmm. to see to see that. So, um, for instance, I think in John 21, 20 and 21, we're the only place in the Gospels where a person actually says to Jesus, you are Lord. Mm-hmm. And it's Thomas. And it's in, in the midst of uh, Thomas's doubt yeah. about who Jesus is. And it's Jesus there saying, well, touch touch my wounds, essentially. Look at my wounds um, and see for yourself. And just the sense that God would go to that um, extent to say, to meet you in your doubts, to meet you in your worst moments, um, 
here's my suffering mm-hmm. for you to experience those. And um, I, another place that often, and I know we often use this in funeral messages, is John chapter 11 right. with uh, the death of Lazarus. And just that whole compelling narrative about, you know, why Jesus doesn't come. Right. He waits four days while uh, it seems Lazarus was still alive. I mean, he waits until he's dead. And all this is Jesus. Well, I'm just going to, I'm going to show you. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, when um, Martha goes out to meet him, uh, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't really speak to her or her doubts. He just says, I'm the resurrection and the life. It's, it's almost as if what Jesus is saying in that moment, what you need is not your brother back. You need me. You need me and everyone. But then, and so Jesus is trying to say that in this, he's the absolute answer to suffering mm-hmm. and to death. But even in the midst of that kind of theological statement, a few verses later, Jesus wept. When they rolled the tumor, he wept. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's this, it's like the most emotional, even uh, some anger word mm-hmm. about what, here's what's wrong with our world mm-hmm. right here. And Jesus breaks yeah. emotionally and just weeps. And so you get this sense of that. The, the first thing I think he wants us to know is he's with us even in the depths mm-hmm. of this. He speaks to it. But then the last thing he says is, Lazarus, come out. Yeah. You know, come out. I'm, I'm the one who has the ultimate solution to death and suffering. Yeah. And so trust me mm-hmm. on this. So I think in the, even in those two moments with Thomas or with uh, Martha and Mary, Jesus is promising his presence and he's promising his ultimate power yeah. over these things. But we wait yeah, in we the do. midst of this. No, I love the way that that story of Jesus so encapsulates so much of the story of Scripture, of yeah. this promise of God's presence, I will be with you mm-hmm. in the midst of this hardship. And one day, all sad things will come untrue, mm-hmm. and, and all death and evil and brokenness will be mended and healed and, and fixed. And I love, too, that in the midst of that... Um, Jesus in that I think he he perfectly um, emulates what scripture does in that it never denies that Mm -hmm. we suffer it never tries to just like gloss over it say that nope suffering's not a thing you don't need to worry about he he engages with their suffering he weeps with them Um, and he also doesn't diminish their suffering he doesn't to so many of the points we made earlier what the church sometimes does he doesn't say it's no big deal it's the most emotion we see from Jesus to say this is not right this is wrong so it validates um, but something scripture does that's interesting is it never allows us to be defined by yeah. our suffering. Um, and I think uh, I've experienced this in my own life and I have seen it in others that when we go through suffering there, there's this uh, propensity we have to, to kind of get stuck in that, that space and to not be able to, to move past it. Um, and we can sometimes become defined by our stories. Mm. And I think one of the hopes we have in scripture and in Jesus is that um, there's something beyond suffering that that's not the final word that's not where we're stuck that's not um, our identity there's something um, that that can happen in the midst of suffering that God can move and shape and mold and, and grow us but then also that one day those things will be redeemed and um, and yeah and and fixed you, you and so, quoted Tolkien earlier I mean joy beyond the walls of this world as yeah. poignant as grief mm-hmm. yeah so, yeah, so it, it doesn't deny it. So I, I think maybe for us, a uh, uh, question to wrap up this conversation is, what do we do to help people who are in suffering? If you are maybe 
uh, walking alongside someone who's deconstructing uh, because of suffering, um, and you just want them to get the answers right and, and, and fix, <laughs> oh, figure no. it out. Um, Stop doing that. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so what are some things that some maybe pieces of wisdom or advice uh, that you would tell people to, that they could kind of walk alongside people who are suffering? Um, yeah. So I would say um, initially one piece too is that I. Th- kind of a a specific subset of people deconstructing suffering is because there's a lot of suffering that we as people can actually do something about. Mm, Um, And then the church's response is thoughts and prayers, like T's and P's. Um, And that isn't helpful. And so I think a lot of times the world is actually um, convicting us and like speaking out against the fact that there's famine, there's all these really awful you know, violence and all these things. And the church is just responding with prayers when in reality we can actually really do things about that. And I think there's a, a big difference between um, the story of, of the boy with famine at the um, at the beginning that you talked about and someone who's lost a loved one, that mm-hmm. there's actually something that we can um, yeah. do about those things. So I would say that some suffering, I think, is um, a specific call to action that we um, – you do something. Show up. Exactly. Yeah, show up. Um, and But I think that if uh, for someone who has gone through a loss or can, some suffering that you can't do something about is um, show up by, by just sitting in silence, um, just just being with them. That I think after after my dad passed away, that those are the things that I, again, I was in the fog, but kind of very, vaguely remember is people that just kind of sat with me and um, brought me food and just kind of watch trashy shows with me or um, just kind of were present with me. Um, That's what I needed. I remember, I think I've maybe shared this story before, but after my mom passed, there was a lady from our neighborhood who she just showed up every day to take the trash out. So just one thing um, that she just walked through our door without even saying anything, didn't knock, just went in, grabbed all the trash that she could find and took it out to the, to the trash bin for us. Like that kind of servanthood and just being with people in that space to, to say, I'm here, I'm with you. Um, I think it's so critical and so, so important. Um, I think, yeah. I was good. But going back to the book of Job, uh, I think there's much to learn about caregiving. The book of Job is about Job, but it's also about Job's friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if you recall, the Job's friends, they started out really well. They mm-hmm. showed up for a week. <laughs> they saw the immensity of his loss, and they sat with him. Didn't say a word, mm-hmm. just sat with him. And then, for whatever reasons, at the end of that week, they opened their mouth and ruined everything. <laughs> it probably felt pretty awkward to be silent for a week. Yeah. It felt like I had to <laughs> say something. something. <laughs> One of the most eloquent descriptions I've ever read about that is actually in uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, translation, The Message. The introduction to the book of Job is one of the best things I've ever read about responding to suffering. And if I could just read a paragraph or two. Eugene Peterson says, there are Job's friends. The moment we find ourselves in trouble of any kind, sick in the hospital, bereaved by a friend's death, dismissed from a job or relationship, depressed or bewildered, people start showing up, telling us exactly what is wrong with us and what we must do to get better. Sufferers attract fixers the way roadkill attracts vultures. At first, we are impressed that they bother with us and amazed at their facility with answers. They know so much. How do they get to be such experts in life? More often than not, though, these people use the word of God frequently and loosely. They are full of spiritual diagnosis and prescription. It all sounds so hopeful. But then we begin to wonder, why is it that for all their apparent compassion, we feel worse? 
instead of better after they've said their piece. The book of Job is not only a witness to the dignity of suffering and God's presence in our suffering, but it is also our primary biblical protest against religion that has been reduced to answers. Many of the answers that Job's so-called friends give him are technically true, but it is the technical part that ruins them. They are answers without personal relationship, intellect without intimacy. The answers are slapped onto Job's ravaged life like labels on a specimen bottle. (laughs) Job rages against the secularized wisdom that has lost touch with the living realities of the present God. That's pretty powerful, what Eugene's going after there. Yeah, Yeah. because I think what it is saying is is you, um, to be with people, you need to be proximate like be with them sit with them um and don't feel like you have to fix or say or or speak um i think some of the most impactful things i've seen are are one people just uh, remembering like dates or anniversaries or um even creating space for people who are suffering to share stories about that to share their experience so many times we feel like we need to provide answers or give our opinions and actually the opposite is true like provide room and space for someone else to share and listen and the other thing I think to, to maybe add to that is, is not trying to fix stuff. And this is maybe cuts both ways, both for people who are suffering and then people who are maybe walking with, with people through suffering. We all know that the kind of like, uh, it's a cliche, but the, the spouse who's really upset about something and something was bad at their work day. And so they come home and tell their spouse about it. And then the spouse just tries to fix it immediately. And it's like, no, I don't yeah. want you to fix it. I just want you to be listen with me. To, yeah, yeah, just listen. <laughs> Understand my experience. And and what's funny about that is it, it's so true. So, like, let's give that to people. That's what we want. So give that to people. Uh, but the second piece of that is sometimes in, in suffering and challenges that we put that expectation on God. And so we come to God and we say, this is what was wrong with my day. And we expect him to step in and fix it. Um, when I don't know always that that's the deepest longing of our heart um, is for God to just take our problems away. Um, we actually need a God who sits with us and experiences that and understands and loves us through that. Um, and that, that sometimes can can maybe sound a little harsh or God is powerful so he can actually do something about it. But um, I think there's, in suffering, there's a chance for us to ask, like, what is the deep longing and need of our hearts? Um, and where does God meet us in that space? Um, and so I, I think it, the more we can help people understand that and, and step into that space with them, uh, the better. Just a couple more thoughts on that, Paul. Eugene Peterson goes on again later, still uh, talking about Job's friends. And I thought these three things were very helpful that he said. He said, first, no matter how insightful we may be, we don't really understand the nature of our friend's suffering. I think one of the, again, one of the worst things to say to someone in suffering is, I know how you feel, Mm -hmm. or I've had my experience doing this or that, and so I get it. You may have had a similar experience, but you don't fully get their experience in this moment. Plus, I've always felt that when someone does say that to someone or if you said it to me, uh, you know, in pain, it's like you're taking the spotlight off their suffering where it should be and you're putting it on yeah, your own. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's just that shift there that doesn't feel good. Uh, the second thing he says is uh, our friends may not want our advice. <laughs> so <laughs> let's, let's be mindful yeah. of that. And then the third part is the ironic fact of the matter is that more often than not, people do not suffer less when they are committed to following God, but often more. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think that's important to keep in mind, too, mm-hmm. that we can't uh, for all, at all anticipate 
the why of this in a person's life. Yeah. Um, I would say the other piece that you kind of talked about a little bit, Larry, with you know the fact that Job's friends sat with him for a week and then got you know in their minds they're like you should be over this mm-hmm. right that i think that it's really important to not put timelines on things for people that i think yeah. at least in my experience that um suffering kind of became this worn path that was really easy for me to to walk and i would come back to it you know something would happen and i would kind of walk this path and and of course it would come out in these you know strange different ways you would hear a song or you would um kind of see something and say like oh i i want to you know, tell Kaylee about this or want to tell my dad about this. And all of a sudden you realize you can't do that and you are hit with it all again. Mm-hmm. Right. And that can be years later. Yeah. Um, and so even if you don't fully understand where they're coming from, or even if you think you do, that putting a timeline isn't mm-hmm. helpful. And I think with that, then asking them to just share stories, to just share where they're at, that I think so often um, prolonged pain, whatever kind it is, can feel um feel like shame because you feel like you should be over it and so to ask people um you know how they're doing or ask stories about their loved one can really it's validating and i think Mm -hmm. kind of helps helps meet them where they're at and shows that you really really care yeah and and from the one who's suffering i do think telling that story again and again again each time is a just another notch of a little bit of healing Mm -hmm. another notch another notch and the person that's lost is honored, um, but the person suffering just more and more coming to terms with what the loss yeah. is. So, can I add two other things? Yeah, I think are please. Um, the Psalms. I th- I think prayer is important because prayer is the theological math one plus one equals three. <laughs> when you when you pray with another person, and often in especially in the deep losses, we don't know what to pray, and mm. that's when the Psalms are so valuable. I just can't say the number of times being even at a deathbed with someone just to pray a psalm and just God invades that space in a big way with with the psalms. The other thing I would ask or advocate is just how powerful written words are to a person who's in suffering. Letters, cards. When I went through my recent cancer journey, that was just meant so much to me. Just people would take the time and write things. And the ones that I've kept are especially from kids (laughs) who who would take the time to roll. I'll never forget a a staff kid who will remain nameless. Uh, (laughs) One of the notes she wrote to me was, uh, Michigan's the the best, Penn State isn't. (laughs) Just that the the kid would sit and, and... think of me and write yeah, that. I just absolutely. For that moment, that just lifted my spirit in the, in the midst of a dark time. But. And there's also a good reminder, too, that um, when people are suffering, sometimes they like to talk about things besides their suffering. Yeah. Like they, yeah. If you can bring in some sense of normalcy, it, it's not the bypassing, it's not the ignoring, but but helping them to, to kind of come back to the land of the living in some ways, and, and I think can be a, a balm in some of those spaces too, for sure. Um, yeah, those are those are all, all great um, pieces of, of, of wisdom and advice. And I think maybe the last thing is if someone is, is kind of deconstructing around um, this idea of suffering, or, or maybe if you are, um, that is the last time um, that you need to try to debate or win an argument or convince 
someone of what you believe to be true, it's a time to stay curious. Um, and one of the things I'm becoming more and more convinced of is, is so many times people are going through seasons of deconstruction um, and they experience judgment, which pushes them further away from the church. And I wonder how different that journey would look as, as you're deconstructing, um, someone met you with curiosity about your beliefs. I, I think most people end up kind of figuring things out if they're not pushed away uh, from the church. But we all have to explore, doubt, wrestle. And so give people that gift of, of creating space for the doubt and for the question listen to it. Don't try to win an argument. Just hear where they're at. And if you're going through deconstruction and, and feeling that, hopefully this is a space where you can maybe um, feel like someone is voicing some of the things you felt, and which is a way of, of listening. Um, any final words or, or resources you'd maybe offer to people to, to kind of close? Uh, yeah. So I would say the book um, that I mentioned earlier, uh, This Too Shall Last, by KJ Ramsey. Um, she is a counselor from Denver Seminary, like I mentioned, um, who's living with chronic illness. Um, and she just talks about that it's not a before and after story, that it's kind of just in the midst of it, um, how she is getting through that and really, really practical. Um, and then I would say the second book um, that I've been working through is called Pieces of Practice by Morgan Harper Nichols. And that one felt very, uh, she kind of gives you practices. Um, to kind of focus on peace. And I think with some of the suffering that I've experienced, that has been really helpful to kind of like practice, you know, breath prayers and, and that sort of thing, that those um, have been two great resources. Mm-hmm. I know you have a couple well, of books. I know two of the books that often in our pastoral care ministry, we, we reference is uh, Gerald Sitzer, who at Whitworth, um, yeah, professor. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, he went through an extreme tragedy in his yeah. life. And this is kind of his memoir of how he endured and uh, but so much there that um, is uh, valuable for people yeah. who are suffering. The other one, uh, more of an intellectual uh, approach to suffering, but yet s- still uh, very pastoral, is Philip Yancey's Where is God When It Hurts? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I would highly recommend those two authors and those yeah. two books. Yeah. The thing I like about Jerry Sitzer's book is that it, so often when you're suffering, as we talked about, it can feel very isolating and lonely. His book is one that just kind of puts to words a lot of what people, I think, feel in suffering. And it's so helpful to hear someone put to words the things that you're feeling that maybe you don't even have the words for where you can say, oh, I'm, I'm not alone or, or someone saying me too. Um, and so I, I guess the last resources we mentioned is we have a number of um, great resources, uh, community groups for people mm-hmm. going through suffering. So Grief Share, if you've experienced a, a deep and tragic loss, um, it is a community of people who all say me too and can walk through that space with you. Uh, divorce Care is another one. Unfortunately, in the church, people um, who've been through divorce think that the church is the last place that they would be welcome or accepted and, and so we have ministry divorce care where you can walk through um, that with a, a community of people and the other one is, is actually this fall we'll be having a class um, or, or community groups called overcome which deal with um, loss and tragedy and, and grief and mental illness and, and really suffering of all kinds and, and forming communities in those spaces uh, to help people overcome um, and walk through those so lots of, of resources if you're interested you could always reach out to, to one of us and we'd be happy to, to help point you in, in that direction. And with grief share and divorce care, I mean, you can just Google those things and they have classes all around the country. And I probably, I mean, it's 2022, they're probably virtual somewhere too, yeah, right? Um, and so right. you can just look that up yeah. um, and find where the closest class for both of those things, at least yeah. for sure. Are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the hope there is just that if you are in a season of, of suffering or wrestling with some of these questions that you know you're not alone and, and there are people who would want to, to walk with you in those spaces. 
And thanks, guys. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank Heavy you. Thanks, Thanks for listening to the Monday Morning Phone Call podcast. We hope that this show will spark conversation and that you'll share this episode with a friend. You can join us on Instagram at WaterstoneCC and Facebook at Waterstone Church to continue the conversation and share your thoughts and opinions with us. This podcast is hosted by me, Paul Joslin, and Alyssa Frisbee. We'll be back next Monday with our next episode.